Welcome to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. My name's Elise Glink, and I'm a best-selling author, financial expert, and CEO of Best Money Moves, a financial wellness technology company. Since the COVID pandemic began, more than 46 million Americans have filed for unemployment, and around 20 million Americans are filing continuing claims. It speaks to an incredible amount of financial hurt. Equifax is a leading credit reporting agency, and as part of its efforts to be helpful in this time of economic pain, the company has launched an extensive COVID and Credit Financial Resource Center, and you can find it at Equifax.com. This podcast is part of the effort to help expand your access to some of the leading financial experts in the country, as well as some of Equifax's own subject matter experts. We discuss real-world financial solutions and share resources for people just like you who want to protect your credit and manage your finances during this COVID-19 pandemic. What we're going through right now, it is nothing short of overwhelming. No two ways about it, and we're working hard to get through it. In this episode, we're going to talk with my good friend Rachel Elson, an award-winning financial journalist and former deputy editor of Money Magazine, and an associate financial planner about how to think about rebuilding your finances and investment post-COVID. But first, let's turn to Beverly Anderson, president of Equifax's Global Consumer Solutions Division, about what to do if there are errors on your credit report and how to dispute that information. Hey, Bev, welcome back to the Credit Talks podcast. Hi, Elise. Thanks. Nice to be here. So it's amazing to see how much things have changed in the past three months since the pandemic began. I mean, it feels like everything is changing from the way we eat to the way we work, even the way we're living. I think we're rethinking everything. I've been particularly surprised at this movement to leave the city and move to the suburbs. When I first started hearing about this, I thought it might just be a short-term fad, but it looks like it's real. According to the National Association of Home Builders, home buyers want more space and are willing to drive rather than take public transportation because they think it's safer. I think it's really interesting to watch how people's attitudes are different now that states are opening up, too. I was walking on the streets of Chicago the other day, and everybody's wearing a mask, and they're making sure to keep social distancing from everyone, even as they're sitting in outdoor cafes and shopping and stopping in at Starbucks and doing stuff that we think of as normal. Well, we are definitely seeing a return to spending, although it isn't exactly where it used to be. Retail sales jumped last month by over 17%. So somebody out there is buying something. Right. And please continue. <laughs> we need <laughs> <For> it. Sure. <laughs> so let me turn to a question that keeps getting asked in the Equifax Facebook page about disputes. And I think there's some confusion about when somebody can dispute an item on their credit report and what the process is for actually doing so. Can you help clear that up? Sure, Elise. Let's start by talking about how credit reports are compiled. Credit reporting agencies, including Equifax, Receive information about your financial behavior from lenders and from creditors with whom you have financial relationships. This information typically includes your credit accounts, your credit lines, like credit cards or an auto loan that you have now or that you've had in the past, as well as information about your payment history, how much you've borrowed, any judgments against you, and other details. It's a good idea to regularly check your credit reports so you're familiar with how your credit history appears on credit reports and to make certain that the information included is actually accurate. So that's good information, but what if you think there are errors on your credit report? Well, if you believe there are errors, then you can dispute the information. One way to handle disputes is to contact your creditor or lender directly to confirm how the information in question is being reported. 
As part of the disputes process, it's a good idea to provide the credit reporting agency with documents showing that the lender or creditor has made a mistake in reporting your financial information to support your dispute. So be prepared and have that paper trail handy if possible. And what if the lender or creditor doesn't fix the information? Well, if you believe certain information is being reported inaccurately, you can file a dispute with the Nationwide Credit Bureau with which you've noticed the discrepancy. If you want to file a dispute with Equifax, you can do it at Equifax.com or sign up for a free MyEquifax.com account and file a dispute there. If you'd like to file a dispute with one of the other nationwide credit bureaus, such as Experian or TransUnion, you'll have to check with them to determine their dispute processes. And what if you've agreed to a forbearance or special financial arrangement with your lender or creditor? That's a great question. If you've agreed to a special financial arrangement with your lender or creditor during the COVID-19 pandemic, such as deferred or delayed payments, you need to make sure that agreement is accurately reflected on your credit reports. Just understand that these agreements may take time to process, so it could be some time before the arrangement is reflected on your report. Still, if you see something that doesn't look right, reach out to your lender or creditor to confirm the details of your arrangement. There are multiple ways you can obtain a free credit report and review this information. But it's important to note that you can set up a free MyEquifax account to do so much more. Conveniently initiate a security or credit freeze, file a fraud or active duty alert, file and manage disputes, and get six free credit reports per year. In addition, you can click Get My Free Credit Score on your MyEquifax dashboard to enroll in Equifax Core Credit for a free monthly Equifax credit report and a free monthly Vantage score based on Equifax data. A Vantage score is one of the many types of credit scores. Bev, how often do you think someone should check their credit? Well, as often as you want. If you want to check your credit report weekly, you should know that in response to COVID-19 pandemic, all three nationwide credit bureaus, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, are offering weekly free online credit reports via annualcreditreport.com through April 2021. Wow. Weekly free online credit reports? That's great information. Thanks so much, Bev. Thank you, Elise. So what about investments in a land of post-COVID? I invited my friend Rachel Elson, who is the former deputy editor of Money Magazine, a CFP certified financial planning candidate, and an associate financial planner based in San Francisco. Rachel, welcome to Credit Talks. Thank you so much. So when I was thinking about really smart people that I wanted to talk to to share their wisdom and years of expertise with our listeners, I really thought about you as being somebody who always has very practical advice and has seen it from both sides now, covering financial planning and now being in the industry itself. How are you finding that? I'm loving it. When you write something for readers, you hope they put something into practice and you kind of cross your fingers. And I love being able to actually make that happen. So nice. Well, I've been beginning to think about what rebuilding our finances looks like after COVID. And we're still in a place where, you know, come the end of July, there's going to be a huge cash cliff for millions of people who are going to find themselves without that $600 extra dollars a week, still without jobs, uh, maybe getting some unemployment for a while, maybe not. But there are a lot of other people who still are employed and are wondering what to do now that their 401k plans seem to have made a comeback. And they may or may not have some extra cash around now, but they will coming out later in the year. And so as you're thinking about rebuilding and you think about the advice you're giving to your own clients, how should we be thinking about this time? 
Well, I mean, we have to acknowledge that there's some uncertainty around this time, right? We want to make sure people aren't taking undue risks. So we want to make sure that the people that are putting money into the market, you want to make sure you're on solid footing before you start investing. So I think that's the first step, really. So if you are on solid footing, what does that look like? And I know that everybody has different levels of expenses, but when you think about sort of generalized budgeting advice, where sure. do you, what does that look like for somebody? We want to make sure that someone has enough between solid income streams, very steady job, a very secure job, plus the amount of money that they have on hand in cash to cover probably three to six months of, of expenses. Once you have beyond that, then you can sort of start investing. Okay. And so how do you think about new investing versus maybe where your investments are now? There are so many people who are saying, oh, maybe I should just double down in, you know, Amazon, or maybe I should double down with Apple, or Microsoft seems down a little bit. You know, where do you even start with how you think about generalized investment bucket? Not specific investments. You know, we're not here to give stock advice, right? But how you think about it and help people think about it. I think it's really important to understand that you don't know what's going to happen, that the guy that's that's talking to you, giving you some advice, doesn't necessarily know what's going to happen, that, that nobody, we really don't have crystal balls. And so when you want to look forward, it's important to think about how do you minimize your risk? How do you align your risk with um, your investing goals, which is really important, knowing are you investing this money for the long term? Are you a 25-year-old who's investing for when they turn 65? Or are you trying to invest some money that you're going to use in the next couple of years uh, for a down payment for a house, for example? I think you, know, you can take a lot more risk if you're investing for 40 years from now. And just knowing that the more you can diversify your investments, you can reduce your risk. So let's talk about that time frame for just a moment, because when you say when you're investing for 40 years, you can do something different than if you're investing for 20 years or investing for 10 years. But that really suggests that there is an end point at which time you either change that investment strategy or you liquidate everything. And yet, with people living longer and longer and people working longer and longer, it feels to me like there isn't that end date maybe so firm, like, okay, 65, you're done, because you might live to be 95. No, but it, it would change your allocation. Again, going back to that idea of covering the expenses that you have coming up with the money you have coming in, as soon as you don't have income streams from earned income from your job, um, then you need to figure out what other income streams you have and the rest of what you will need for that time should be more conservative, should be in bonds and cash. Um, you know, we don't ever want someone to pull money out of stocks when the market is at a bottom. So you want to make sure, so now you're not looking at a three to six month emergency fund because you're working and you know this is just in case. Now you're looking at how much do I need to live on for the next X number of years? It should be a number that's enough to ride out a stock downturn if there were a really bad downturn. And then you could continue to be aggressive with the, the rest of your portfolio. Which is sort of interesting. The idea that you're going to change the way that you invest when you get to be, let's say, a 65 or a 67 or a 70. And yet, a lot of times, expenses really aren't going to change. So you've got people, baby boomers, who have tons of debt and new loans, 30-year uh, loans on their expensive homes and new cars and outrageously high health care bills. It 
you know, after a while, it's sort of hard to figure out how you're going to actually reduce those expenses. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. You will have some income stream coming in from Social Security, but it won't be enough to cover everything. And so that's why, you know, that's why we want people who are 25 to start thinking about 40 years down the road, because we want people to position themselves early on. Um, it's a lot harder to position yourself for retirement if you're coming in sort of five years away from leaving your job and you haven't done the saving. So if you're in your 40s and 50s and you now can see your way clear to having kids through college or maybe they're already in college uh, or you figured out how they're going to pay for their own college and you're free of that burden, is it a good idea to start imagining what life in retirement looks like for you? Because I think it's different for a lot of people. When I think about myself and my husband Sam, for example, um, it's hard to imagine Sam ever not lawyering, which is what he does, and it's hard for me to imagine that I wouldn't be bringing in a little bit of income doing something, whether it's you know revenue from all the books I've written all my years, and I get a you know check for a thousand or two thousand dollars here or there is in terms of residuals, or maybe it's doing some consulting along the way. You know, is that more common as people continue to work and develop skills that allow them to? Do that and, and is that approach even a good idea? Just sort of say, here's what I'm thinking I might want to do during my days in quote unquote retirement, and none of it includes golf and shuffleboard. So how do I plan for that? Um, first of all, when people say to me, how much do I need to retire? I want to know what those days look like because you can have very expensive days and you can have very inexpensive days. And we have clients for whom we budget 4000 a month in spending because they really live pretty lean, they're homebodies, they want to be around. And we have clients for whom we have to budget $40,000 a month in spending. That's a you really can... wide, <laughs> that is, it's a really wide spectrum. But I can't help you figure out how much money you need to have to ensure a safe retirement unless I know how you expect to live and what those spending needs are. Um, the other question about continuing to work, I think, first of all, not everyone has the choice right? Some people have to continue working. Second of all, we have people who come in who say, we want to retire by the time we're 48. We think we're going to have kids in our 30s. For those last teenage years, we want to be around for our kids, maybe 45. And then we have people who are like, nah, I know I'm 69, but I, th I think I have, I think I want to keep working for a couple more years. So it's very personal. You know, we, do, we almost never talk about retirement for our clients. We talk about financial independence. We want to get you to a place where if you want to keep working, great, but you don't need to keep working. So when you finally come up with that idea of what it's going to cost you in retirement and you can start to imagine how much you're going to have to save today to in order to get there, is there a way for people to do that calculation? I mean, it's not like you say, well, you need $3 million, so just divide by the number of years you have left and save everything plus play the lottery. Like, what, what does that advice look like? <laughs> oh, I mean, it's a tough calculation. The rules that have been batted around for a long time are that there is a 4% withdrawal rate, that if you had a million-dollar portfolio, you could safely take away, take $40,000 out of that, plus whatever you were going to get from Social Security. Then during the financial crisis, people said, oh, no, that should really be maybe closer to 3 or 3.5%. Three I mean, we use financial planning software when we map it out, but, but really you want to make sure that you're taking a fairly small chunk of it because you need the rest of it to be able to continue growing. 
So as you're thinking about this and advising clients in their 30s and 40s, hopefully 20s, we'll see who's smart enough, what are some of the best practices that you have for people to uh, start saving money? Because one of the things that I have always said to people is just do it in a way that you don't even miss it, right? Take it right off the top, max out the 401k, make sure that every single month that you're putting money away. What do you tell people? Max out the 401k, not just to max out the match, but max out as much of that 401k as you can. That is the best tax deferred option for a lot of working people. We also recommend actually for a lot, especially if you're younger and you don't have a lot of health issues, that you also take a high deductible health plan and you save money to your HSA, which has become a sort of shadow IRA for a lot of people because you can let invest that and let it grow and it becomes a second pot of retirement funds. And you will never, if you only remove that to pay for your health expenses later in retirement, you will never pay tax on that money. Um, unlike an IRA where you'll pay tax coming out. I encourage people to think really broadly about how they invest, right? Um, some of the apps uh, that are sort of encourage stock picking make me very nervous. <laughs> Again, to that point where you don't know what's gonna happen. And the best thing you can do is broaden your investment and reduce the volatility of your of your investments that way. That could mean stocks and bonds. That could end the proportion of those will affect the risk that you take, right? And the, re the returns you get. Um, that also could mean big stocks and small stocks. The S&P 500 is just the 500 biggest US stocks. So maybe you want something like a total stock market index rather than just the big or just betting on small caps. There's also thinking broadly, thinking internationally. We're part of a global economy. There's a great report from Vanguard that said that the maximum reduction in volatility of a portfolio, so the, the greatest buffering effect of global stocks, of non-US stocks, happens when they're about 35-40% of your portfolio, which I think a lot of us don't think of. We think of the S&P 500 and we're done. But it's not just all U.S. stocks, it's the world of stocks, right? Well, what's interesting to me is that number, because we've long heard that you should have an international component, but typically that's always been recommended as 15%. But you think that we should be going as high as 35 to 40%? Well, Vanguard thinks so. <laughs> Vanguard thinks so. But that's interesting. Um, but historically, that has proved the biggest buffer. Um, do you think 15% of a portfolio or do you think 15% of all stocks of equities? So it's a great question. When I talk to people about this, I typically say that you want to have the largest portion in a total stock and then you want a total bond and you probably want you know, another 15% of your portfolio in international, um, international fund. And mm -hmm. so of stocks, I guess that might be, depending on what percentage you have, the total bond fund could be as high as 30%. Right. right. Or you could have in a 60-40 portfolio, 60% stock, 40%, 15% of that 60 or 15% is a, a quarter of that 60. It's 25% of your. So it's not as out of line as, as you might think at first. It's not. It's just for somebody like me in their 50s who has historically had very little in the way of bonds, but I have done cash. Even now, it's very little in cash and 100% in stocks. I think I'm still only at about 15 to 20% in international. Um, and I always like to be transparent about what I'm doing. I'm completely mm -hmm. invested in index mutual funds because they are cheap and uh, that's what we offer. 
So, you know, when you think about this and you've got clients come to you and, and you do recommend that they fully fund that, that 401k, what if you just have terrible choices in that 401k? Because not everybody has cheap index funds as options. Ugh, that is a really hard question. Um, how long are you going to stay at this job as part of it? If you're staying, if you are someone who changes jobs every two or three years, get that money in there and roll it over as soon as you can to an IRA, uh, to a Schwab or a Vanguard or a Fidelity, somewhere where you can get some broad and cheap index funds because you, again, you want to just keep the fees low. You could invest outside it. It's harder psychologically, I think. Like if you're putting money in your 401k, it's automatic. If you are not doing it automatically, you need to use your Google Calendar or your iCal and set an appointment for yourself. Like once a month, transfer that money over and invest it in the shares that you would, you know, in the, the percentages that you would want to invest in. It just is going to be a little bit incumbent on you to do that work, and it's going to be a little harder. And you can also, depending on how much you make, you might also be able to use an IRA. But again, you can just use a brokerage account. Our brains are the toughest challenge when we invest, right? Because we have fear. You know, we talk about dollar cost averaging in, and there's lots of reasons to dollar cost average in. But the biggest reason to do it is psychological, because you don't say, Oh, I was supposed to do it today, but the market's up really high. And so maybe I'm concerned about it and I shouldn't do it. And, you know, and then you miss out on a set of gains. So you really want to give yourself a calendar, give yourself a schedule and make sure you follow, figure out a way to make yourself do it. So last question. I get asked a lot about choosing somebody to help you along that path. That some sort of investment advisor. I, my personal opinion is not everybody needs one. But Correct. now that you're on that side of the aisle, <laughs> tell us about you know sort of your perspective on this and how it's changed, if it has, and then also how you should go about evaluating the right person for you. Um, I think that it depends how complex your life is. I think that if you have a stable job, you make good money, you're able to fund, you know, all of your choices yourself and you're saving money and you're investing money over time and you feel pretty good about self-educating, you maybe don't need an advisor. We're not going to tell you there's a magic stock or a magic something that you should be in. What people use us for often is the big complicated life decisions. I just got a new job and I've got a lot of equity compensation I need help with. Also, I have a child, you know, under 10 and another one coming, and I'm trying to figure out what college will cost. Also, we have one house, but I'm not sure if we should expand it or whether we should move. You know, that's a lot of decisions. And so that's the time I think that it's really important to work with a planner who can sort of model out a lot of the choices and figure out what you can do, what your options are, how those might affect your path. And then also just if your questions are around estate planning, you want someone who knows a little bit about working with estate planners. So it really depends on how complicated you are or your life is now and how complicated it might be in the future. And if you're just about saving for the future, salt your money away, uh, dollar cost average in, and max out the 401k. And if Keep you're your able low. to do it, your Roth IRA. Yeah. So it basically take every cent you can and stick it away for the future. Don't cheat yourself so much that you resent saving, right? To the extent that it's possible, you should treat yourself enough that you don't feel bad saving for more treats later on. Um, because I think that people who put themselves on too stringent a budget, it's like a super strict diet. It's, it, it's no different. 
Um, but find some, find a pace, a cadence that you can live with and just kind of keep your eye on that. So Rachel Elson, a treat deferred today is worth two tomorrow. More than two. (laughs) (laughs) Former deputy editor of Money Magazine and an associate financial planner. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Well, that does it for this week's Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Please visit the Equifax COVID and Credit Financial Resource Center at Equifax.com. And remember that if you do sign up for your My Equifax account, you can get six free copies of your Equifax credit report each year. We'll be back soon with another Equifax Credit Talks podcast. I'm Elise Klink. Thanks for listening.